Thanks for ministering to me this morning. Your strong voices, your worshipful hearts, man, that was good to hear, um, and I'm grateful. How many of y'all actually know what dinner on the ground is? I'm thinking it's 65 and older is mostly what I'm seeing. <laughs> so 65, here's the deal. Dinner on the ground is an old-fashioned phrase that described what they used to do whenever they would literally have church have a picnic basket, and go have dinner on the ground. And, and so what we want you to understand about what we're trying to do here at Melanie Park is we want to renew the simple. <laughs> we don't want it to be complicated. We want you to come with your family and your friends and your neighbors, bring a picnic lunch, and let's have dinner on the ground and just enjoy the simple fact of being together, okay? Same idea for tonight. It's not complicated. It's not flashy. It's simple. We want to sing praise to God. We want to gather together in prayer, and we want to invite you to be a part of that. Bring friends and family to that as well. So um, sometimes simple is better, isn't it? So that's what we're shooting for. Um, so this morning, I want to just talk to you about um, wisdom. And I want to talk about how the re there's this reality that we all know there's some brilliant people in the world who've made some of the worst decisions. Take Steve Jobs, for example. Brilliant man, isn't he? He, it, he invented and, and orchestrated so many amazing Apple products, built an entire empire. But, but as we know, one, at one point he got cancer, was diagnosed. And his medical team advised him that the best course of treatment at least initially, was surgery, which makes sense to remove any of the cancer that you possibly can to more effectively treat what's left. Well, despite that advice, Steve Jobs declined it and decided instead to treat his cancer by changing his diet in acupuncture, which everybody's entitled to their own decisions, but it just didn't seem like the best possible response to the medical advice that he had received. And, and unfortunately, Steve Jobs eventually died. But if we look in the Bible, there's plenty of more examples of brilliant people making bad decisions, right? And one of probably the one that we would most often look to as the prime example is Solomon. Because here was a man who was given a gift of a wise and discerning heart. And yet, when you look at his life, he made some of the most disastrous decisions. So it just goes to show that just because you're smart doesn't mean you're wise, and just because you're wise doesn't mean you're right. Wisdom may give you a discerning heart, but you still have to apply faith to make the right choice. I mean, how many of you in your own personal life have known very clearly what the right thing to do was, and yet you chose something different? I mean, I think we've all been guilty of that. Wisdom is a gift, but obedience is a choice. Wisdom is a gift, but obedience is a choice. It's learning to trust in God more than we trust ourselves. I mean, that's the heart behind the proverb that we're all familiar with. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths 
straight. And then it goes on and says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Instead, fear the Lord and turn from evil. That's what true wisdom looks like. And that's what we'll look at this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that when it comes to wisdom, we're talking about an attribute that we don't possess on our own, at least not of any significance to effectively navigate life. We need a wisdom that comes from you. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, would you open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our minds, bless us with spiritual wisdom to see your truth along with the desire to live it out in our daily lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to look at Solomon's prayer. You've probably read this prayer before, but I want us to unpack it together and, and see how this has this life as well. So 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 6 says this. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according to, as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. Do not know how to go out or to come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So right up front, I want us to understand that despite Solomon's failures in his lifetime, this right here is a very heartfelt, sincere prayer. It follows, if you look ahead in the, of the passage, a period of worship where, get this, Solomon offers 1,000 burnt offerings before the Lord. 1,000. It was a time of sincere devotion before the Lord, and it was in that night, following that worship, that God spoke to Solomon in a dream. And in this dream, he invited Solomon to ask of what his heart desire might be, because Solomon had given the Lord his heart in worship, and so God is offering to give him his heart's desire. And what we see here in verse 6 is Solomon's reply to that invitation. And if you look closely, you will find that his language is very intentional. He chooses words and phrases and there's implications that point directly back to the covenant promise that God made to Solomon's father, David. In fact, listen to me as I read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, and listen to some of the connections that you'll hear in this promise from God. He says, when your days are complete speaking to King David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, talking about Solomon. And in Solomon's prayer, he's recognized that, hasn't he? He says, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness, okay, that's the same word that Solomon uses in his prayer, and I'm convinced that's not an accident. He says, your loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So we can see that Solomon is looking back to this promise made to his father David. And he's recognizing that he did not get to this position of king. He did not assume the throne on his own. It was because of the great loving kindness of God. It was because of the promise fulfilled by God to his father David. Solomon understands that he is the king of Israel only because God has placed him there. It reminds me of the story of the farmer. He was walking in his field one day, and he looks and he sees a turtle on top of a fence post. (laughs) And he stopped and stared at it for a while, and he thought, I'm not uh, sure how he got there, but one thing I do know, he didn't get there on his own. And the same is true for Solomon. He didn't get there on his own, and he knew this. He was quick to admit. He says, I have no idea what he's doing. That's my interpretation, but that's what he said. I have no idea what I'm doing. Verse 7, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in, which is a remarkable admission if you recognize the fact that Solomon was probably in his early 20s at the time. And I don't know about you, but when I was in my early 20s, I had it all figured out. I wasn't asking for help. I had the solutions to all the world's problems. I mean, my whole theology system was already established and solid and compelling. And if you didn't agree with me, you were probably A, old-fashioned, or B, just not enlightened as I had been. But that's not what we see with Solomon, and that's what's so remarkable about this. He's admitting, I've got so much to learn. I'm but a child, and I desperately need your help. So he asked the Lord to give him an understanding heart. Why? Because he wants to discern. He knows that he's in a position of judge over the people, and he wants to discern what is right and what is good, what is evil and what is bad. He's been given a huge responsibility as the leader of God's people, and he's asking for the Lord to guide him. In essence, he wants to do what's right in the eyes of God. And I believe that this is an absolutely sincere prayer from Solomon. One of the reasons I'm convinced of that is because of the response that we see from God in the following verses. Look at verse 10. It says, It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor to have riches for yourself, nor to have uh, asked for your life to be free from enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one be like you arise after you. I have also given you what you haven't asked for, both riches and honor so that there will not be any among you, the kings like you, all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commands as your father David walked, 
then I will prolong your days. So we see clearly from this response that that God was pleased with Solomon's prayer. And it's easy to see why. He he made no effort to acquire things for himself. There was, was no selfish motive in his request. He wanted to do what was right in the eyes of God. Not unlike many of the men who preceded him, like Abraham, right, who was the father of the Jewish nation. Or like Moses, who met face-to-face with God. Or Joshua, who led the nation of Israel into the promised land. Or what about his own father, King David, a man after God's own heart? So these are some big shoes to fill, aren't they? And Solomon was not taking it lightly. So the scripture tells us that God gave him wisdom beyond what anyone had ever known. And not only that, it says that he gave him what he didn't ask for. He gave him riches, and he gave him honor. Solomon was truly set apart from all of his contemporaries at the time. There was no one like him. In fact, the rich and famous would come to see him. We know that because of the story of the Queen of Sheba, who came to visit King Solomon to see for herself what she had heard about his reputation. And upon seeing it, her response was, they're right. I've never seen anything like this before. But I also want us to understand that it's not as if God wrote Solomon a blank check and said, go ahead, do whatever you want. Because if you look closely, there was a a condition attached to his gift. Look at verse 14 again. He says, if, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commands, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Solomon's wisdom was a gift His obedience was a choice. He he may have known what was right, but he still had to use faith to apply it to his life. Which doesn't mean God expected Solomon to be perfect. We know that because his father David wasn't perfect. But we talked about this last week, didn't we? We knew that even though David made mistakes, what was the definitive quality in his life? Repentance, right? He had a repentant heart. He, he recognized his sin. He confessed his sin. He didn't make excuse for his sin. And he knew that he had sinned against God and God alone. And so God is telling Solomon, live out that same attribute that you saw in your father's life. Growing in his faith as he learns to trust in God more than he trusts in himself. And there were times when this was absolutely true of Solomon, but sadly, and even increasingly over time, it became less and less true in his life. Solomon's life was kind of a mixed bag of wisdom combined with with bad decisions. For example, he expanded the borders of Israel beyond what they had ever known, which is a good thing, right? Many of those alliances ratified through marriage, which was common at the time, of the way you ratified a treaty, which is why Solomon had so many wives. Many of them came from these treaties ratified with these pagan countries. Solomon advanced Jewish society beyond what really they'd ever known. Massive building projects, massive improvements to infrastructure. It's a good thing, right? But he did this by instituting forced labor 
of his own people in order to carry out that work. He ruled one of the wealthiest kingdoms that the world had ever known, receiving a constant supply of tax tributes from the nations that surrounded him. He amassed a large number of resources, and he he used a lot of this to to provide protection for the nation of Israel, which is a good thing, right? In Scripture, we learn, get this, he had 4,000 stalls for his chariot horses. 4,000. But then there was another 12,000 horses on top of that, many of which he acquired from Egypt in his alliance with them. So, So he had this massive military presence. We know, most importantly in his life, that Solomon built the temple just as God said he would. It was a massive project. In fact, if you go there today, many of the stones used in that architecture are still in Jerusalem. They haven't moved, literally. It took them seven years to complete the project, but it took them 13 years to complete his palace. I'd love to tell you something. In Deuteronomy, we see really the reason of Solomon's downfall. It was spoken by God, interestingly enough, before there was ever a king in Israel. So this was hundreds of years before Solomon, okay? And I want you to listen closely as I read Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, is where I'll begin. And I want you to listen to the ways that are being described by God that were fulfilled in Solomon's compromise. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 14. It says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations who were around me, which, by the way, was not God's original intent. This was a request made by mankind because of the pride of looking around them and saying, we want to be like them. Everybody else has a king. We want one too. So God allows them to fulfill that request, and he goes on and says, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, you shall not, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause people to return to Egypt to multiply them. You shall never again return that way. You shall, he shall not multiply wives. Multiply wives or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Any of this ringing true? Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of the law on a scroll In the presence of the Levitical priest, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of the law and the statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. You see, when Solomon's heart became ruled by pride, he no longer relied on God for wisdom. 
and this is a really important lesson for us to look at because you and I are not immune to falling into the same trap. After all, as believers in Christ, we have something in common, actually a lot in common with Solomon. We've all been blessed with wisdom beyond what we possess on our own. Okay, we know that from what we see in James chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously, generously with out approach, and it will be given to him. So what he's saying here is, look, divine wisdom is not in limited supply, which is a big deal in our world today because it seems like everything else is, right? Limited supply of lumber, limited supply of cars, limited supply of computer chips. And there's a limited supply of everything. But God is saying there is nor never will be a limited supply of wisdom. Just like Solomon, God makes his wisdom available to us, but we still must choose to use it. Which is why Paul prays for the Colossians like he does when he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, here it is, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that, now here's the application, you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He goes on later in that same letter in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And here's the result, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So so we may not have all the the treasure and honor that that Solomon had, but we do have supply of wisdom. We are rich in God's wisdom because he gives generously, over and abundantly, what we can ask or imagine. And yet, we still must choose to obey. See how much we have in common with Solomon? But really, it goes even back earlier than Solomon. It goes all the way back to the garden. Because we see there that God gave generously to Adam and Eve as well, didn't he? They had everything they might need. And what they had, they had in abundance, didn't they? As you look at the story of Adam and Eve, you see that that God flourished his goodness upon them. And he said, there's only one exception. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat from that tree, or in that day you will die. Now, if you're like me, you're reading this story as you have from a child from childhood, and you're asking yourself, then why did he put the tree in the garden? Right? Have you ever wondered that? Why even put it there in the first place? I mean, when you think about it, did, do you ever get the impression that while the tree was there and they hadn't eaten from it, were they Were they struggling to discern what was good and evil? Were they missing something by not eating that tree? No. They had everything they needed from the Lord. He was helping them understand what was good and evil, what was right and wrong. And that's the point. The tree presented a choice. It forced them, like us, to make a decision about who we will rely on 
for our source of wisdom? Will it be us and doing what is right in our own eyes? Or will it be someone outside of us who is all-wise, all-knowing, who is offering to give us his wisdom generously? It's a choice. Same for them as it is for us. Which is the key behind Satan's deception. Okay? Listen to this again. You've heard this before, but listen closely. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. This is what the, 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 uh, Satan says when he tempts Eve. He says, you won't die. For God knows when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. How? Knowing good and evil, the implication being for yourself. You can decide what's right in your own eyes. You can be like God. That's where it all began. And so I want us to, to end this morning by, by, again, reminding ourselves of Solomon's prayer and identifying the things that are good and true in what I said and believe was a very sincere prayer from Solomon so that we can learn from his mistakes, preserving that wisdom that he forfeited or failed to protect. The first thing I want you to notice is Solomon's humility, okay? This one should jump right off the page. It's, in my mind, the easiest to observe in Solomon's prayer. He clearly admits, I don't have it all figured out, okay? I need your help. That was the heart of his prayer. He humbly confesses his desperate need for God's help. And so in order to, to walk in wisdom, we need to protect humility. So I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite things lately has been uh, the Bible Project app, okay? It's something they came out with just this year. You're familiar with the Bible Project. They do the, the visual drawing demonstrations of uh, summaries of books and themes in the Bible, which are fantastic in and of themselves. But in the app, they have other things like podcasts and things that I just thoroughly love listening to. And there's two main guys. One of them is a brilliant young man. He's got to be in his 20s. At least he looks that way. But he's brilliant. I mean, he is, a, he, he is a Greek and Hebrew scholar. The other guy is a lot like me, okay? He'll listen to the brilliant man and go, I don't understand what you just said. And I'm like, hey, I'm glad he asked the question. I was thinking the same thing. But I love to see how they interact with each other because I think I gain as much from seeing how they dialogue together as I do with what they have to say. Because it's such a beautiful demonstration of humility, because here is this man who is brilliant, and the other guy will ask him a question or make a point, and he'll say, that's a great question. I've never thought of it. Thank you for asking that question. Or he'll say things like, that's really interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. That's really helpful for me. Thank you. I think we can learn from examples of people relating to each other in humility because it's so uncharacteristic in our world today. Much of the passion, okay, don't, don't miss this one, much of the passion in our disagreements is pride. It's, it's, it's not righteous anger, okay? It's just plain and simple. It's pride. It's true in politics. It's true in religion. It's true in social justice issues. We're so quick to cast judgment on people. 
Because in our minds, we got this thing figured out. But in order to walk in wisdom, we must preserve a humble heart. The other thing that I see in Solomon's prayer is his ability to take responsibility. He asked for wisdom because he's leading God's people. He knew that that was a big responsibility. He is called to represent God before the people. He is God to, called to, to represent God's word in truthfulness. His people, the Israelites, were called to be a light to the nations around them, and he was their leader. And that's no small responsibility, and Solomon knew it. So he asked for wisdom to be able to represent God well, and the same should be true for us. See, we, we don't, we don't want to pursue wisdom in order to make good decisions in our retirement portfolio. That's not what God is telling us to do. Or, or wisdom to raise our kids well so they make us look good. <laughs> or at least don't embarrass us too much. Right? That's not what God has in mind. Because very often our prayers center around us. But God is saying, I'm giving you wisdom so that you will glorify me. And that's what Solomon's heart was. He was taking responsibility, and he knew that he needed God's wisdom to represent him well. And we should ask for the same. Representing God's heart, accurately representing God's word, that's no small responsibility. Because you remember, we are ambassadors for Christ, right? So like Israel, we are called to be a, a light among the nations. That's no small responsibility. And we should be asking for wisdom in order to do that well. So we need to walk in humility. We need to take responsibility. And then finally, we need to cultivate a heart like Solomon that was dependent upon the Lord. Reminds me of a, an encounter that Moses had with God towards the end of his life. Moses, in his lifetime, made several mistakes, but he learned from those mistakes over time because God was preparing to lead the people into the promised land. Moses knew that he wasn't going to be going with them, but as he was talking and dialoguing with the Lord, God said that he would send them, and Moses' response was this. He says, if your spirit does not go with us, do not lead us from here. In other words, if you're not leading, we're not moving. If you're not leading, we're not moving. You see, Moses had developed a heart of dependence. He had made mistakes, and maybe through him, he had learned to trust in God more than he trusted in himself. So we need to be careful in our own lives not to get ahead of God ourselves, doing what is right in our own eyes, and then asking him to bless us. Jesus was serious when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In order to walk in wisdom, we must cultivate a heart of dependence. Our decisions can't be based on how we feel or what we see in society or even what makes most logical sense to us. We need God's wisdom to know what is right. We need God's word to know what is true. And we are completely dependent upon those things to make wise decisions.
trusting in God more than we trust ourselves. So let me remind you again, God gives generously. You have all the wisdom you will ever need. Wisdom is a gift. Obedience is a choice. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. But fear the Lord. Trust in him and turn away from evil. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for understanding the weakness of humanity. That in and of ourselves... We have no ability to navigate life successfully. Left to ourselves, Lord, we have a whole history of humanity to prove this, but left to ourselves, we will make a mess of this world. And so, Lord, if we want to do what is right in your eyes, if we want to live within the boundaries of your design, if we want to flourish in what is good and what is right and what is true, we need to have a wisdom that comes from you, knowing that you give generously and that we will always have more than we will ever need. So help us to receive that gift in gratitude and then apply that gift in obedience. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. So uh, sincerely, thank you for the way you ministered to me this morning. I'm grateful for each of you and for your hearts for the Lord and for just the way that you encourage me with even just the songs you sang this morning. Um, I do want to encourage you to come tonight. It's simple. Um, it's important as we spend time in praise and stop to pray together. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't have time for this. Have you ever thought that before? I'm just telling you, I don't have time for this, but I need to make time for this because it's that important for us to be together as God's people, going before the Lord and applying what we just learned, seeking him for a wisdom that we do not have on our own through humble prayer, taking responsibility for what he's called us to do, and then walking that out in obedience as we trust in him. Amen? Have a great day.